Hey everyone, welcome back to the Darkness Inside podcast. Today I am bringing you episode 22 of the podcast. Since we have started the month of February and Valentine's uh, Day is around the corner, I am bringing you this case about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I know that I know what you might be thinking that this is going to be about a love gone wrong or something like that, but it, it it's actually going to involve gangsters in the 20s during the time of prohibition this episode is about the violence in chicago during the late 1920s it's about gangsters like al capone and george bugs moran fighting over territory gang warfare ruled the streets of chicago during the late 1920s so i'm gonna be uh so i'm gonna start telling you a little about the time period that this happened in like i mentioned before it's during the time of prohibition which started in the 1920s and lasted until 1933. prohibition was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production importation transportation and sale of alcoholic beverages so basically anything that had to do with alcohol was illegal um, you couldn't, there was no bars, you couldn't, stuff like that. So this is when speakeasies started showing up. Speakeasies were illegal, low-key places that sold alcohol. Prohibition in the 1920s would lead to America's gangsters earning millions of dollars through bootlegging, which was the illegal manufacture and sale of alcohol, speakeasies, gambling, and prostitution. During the, uh, so during... 1924 through 1930, Chicago gained a big reputation for lawlessness and violence. During this time, crime lord Al Scarface Capone took over for his boss, Johnny Torrio, in 1925. Al Capone wanted to gain control by eliminating his rivals in illegal trades of bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution. George Bugs Moran was one of Capone's longtime um, enemy. Bugs Moran controlled much of the North Side's illegal booze traffic and most of its brothels and casinos. Capone's income was $60 million a year. His net worth by 1927 was, a, was around $100 million. Due to prohibition, gangsters had become millionaire celebrities. George Bugs Moran was the leader of the North Side gang. Before Al Capone took over for the South Side, uh, Johnny Torrio and Bugs Moran were pretty peaceful. It wouldn't be until Al Capone became the leader that it turns bloody because Capone wanted to take control over the whole trade of bootlegging, prostitution, and casinos. So on February 14th, 1929, Chicago's north, north side would erupt in gang violence. So on this morning, uh, which happened to be a cold morning from what I heard in a documentary that I actually watched about this uh, case, they say that it was about 18 degrees. So I can only imagine how cold that is. Being from Los Angeles, I've never been in 18 degree weather. This garage on North Clark Street was used for storage not a hangout spot that's why many believe that the men in that room were actually there for a meeting so because the men in that garage were some of the top members of bugs moran's uh north side gang 
It is believed that the gang was going to receive a truck of alcohol that had just been hijacked. The seven men in the garage were Johnny May, who was the gang's mechanic, who was under a truck repairing a wheel. He had a wife, seven kids, and his dog named Highball, who was there right next to him. Two other men were the Gusenberg brothers, Frank and Peter, two of the city's most troublesome goons. James Clark, a convicted armed robber and reputed killer. Then there was Adam Hare, a.k.a. Frank Snyder. He was an accountant and embezzler. Uh, we have Albert Weinshank, who was a club owner. Then there was Reinhard H. Schwimmer, who was an optometrist that just liked hanging around gangsters. So he was basically like an innocent bystander who thought it looked cool to hang out with gangsters. Some even say that he dressed like Bugs Moran. So since Bugs was the target, many believe that the lookouts that were gonna call the hit confused him for Bugs Moran. So at around 10.30 a.m., a big black Cadillac turned from Webster Avenue onto Clark Street, heading south. The car stopped right in front of uh, SMC Cartage Company at 2122 North Clark Street. Witness accounts vary because some saw four men getting out of the Cadillac, others saw five men. They say that the driver wore a fancy chinchilla top coat and a gray fedora. Two other men were dressed as police officers. Some accounts believe that the men in the garage knew the men, or maybe it was because two were dressed as police officers, uh, but the men in the garage were armed but they didn't seem scared or they didn't use their guns at all. The intruders had two Tommies and a 12 and a 12 gauge um, shotgun. The seven men were ordered to line up shoulder to shoulder against the wall and were sprayed by bullets so much that some of their limbs were severed by how bad they had been shot. The neighbors did hear popping, but they thought it was an engine that was backfiring. When some of them peered out the window, they saw the men getting back into the Cadillac and just driving off, nearly hitting a trolley. They could hear the dog Highball just howling. Uh, This is really sad because Highball was so traumatized that eventually he had to be put down. When neighbors went to go check what had happened, they saw six dead mutilated shot up bodies and found Highball just howling. Frank Gusenberg was still alive, just gasping for air. The first officer to respond was Sergeant Thomas J. Loftus, a veteran from the 36th District Station. Frank Gusenberg had been shot 14 times and was gasping to just stay alive. Gusenberg, following gangster code, said that he wouldn't talk, but some, but some newspapers do report that he also ended up saying that the cops had done it. Loftus pressed for more details, but when he got to the hospital, Frank Gusenberg was already dead. When this crime was going down, Al Capone was actually in Dade County, Florida. He was in the courthouse. He was 30 at the time and could always be photographed with a smile on his face. Capone was there to meet with a prosecutor named Louis Goldstein who was investigating the murder in New York of Capone's friend and mentor, Frankie Yale. This is also an unsolved crime, and some believe that actually Bugs Moran killed Frankie, and that this is why Al Capone put out the hit on the garage, thinking Moran would be there. 
He was also confident that Al, Al Capone showed up to this courthouse without a, without a lawyer. But instead of asking him about the murder of Frankie Yell, they started asking him about his finances. He did know that for months now, they had been looking into his finances, but he saw no representative of the IRS, so he felt confident. When the meeting was over, news of the massacre was all over the country. Black and white photos were all over the press. These photos were some of the most graphic to ever be seen. Even though Chicago was known as violent, the news of this massacre was shocking even for Chicago. Somehow this massacre had crossed the line. The president-elect Herbert Hoover had made criminal justice his main point while campaigning. The killing of these seven men definitely gave him the determination to go after gangsters, especially Al Capone, who everyone was certain was behind this. All across the country, people reached the conclusion that this massacre had crossed the line and that the whole prohibition experiment had caused all of this. Al Capone was confident because of his alibi, because he had been with the prosecutor in the courthouse, but no one believed that. Maybe because he was, he is Al Capone and probably has hitmen to actually do his dirty work. Everyone from detectives, federal law enforcement, and reporters were all over the north side, but they couldn't find anything. Instead, they just found more clues, more theories, but no answers. Now I'm gonna be going over some theories that are out there of why this massacre happened on Valentine's Day of 1929. So the first one is that Frank Gusenberg, before dying, had actually told the truth and that the cops had done it. Apparently the Northside gang had robbed a truck from a crooked cop. And this was retaliation for doing that. Of course, investigators turned this down by saying that the two men dressed as cops could have just been imposters the cops turned a blind eye to this theory. The second theory is that um, this hit had been had come from the Purple Gang. This gang was from Detroit, and apparently the North Side Gang had hijacked one of their trucks that had a lot of whiskey in it. Apparently, the Purple Gang had rented a room across the garage to spy on Moran's men. The third theory was that the killing was tied to. Um, fight for control of the dry cleaning rackets. Albert Weinshank, one of Moran's guys and one of the dead, was a central figure in the laundry business. Police would even look into Bugs Moran because he was seen passing by the garage. And that's because he was running late and when he arrived, he saw all the police and investigators that he just decided to turn around. After five days, the police would claim that they had found new evidence suggesting that the cops had actually committed the massacre in the garage. The story went that Moran's gang had stolen a truckload of, truckload of liquor, liquor from an unnamed crooked cop and that that cop wanted to get revenge. A week after the massacre, cops found a stripped down burnt Cadillac but not even that would help investigators find out what happened. David Stansbury, the lead investigator, said that he could think of so many motives, but no one serious ever stood out. He also sincerely believed that Al Capone was not involved in this. The police were also looking for machine gun. That was the nickname of one of Capone's top uh, executioners. And when they did find him, he didn't seem worried at all. 
He said that if the Gusenberg brothers would have seen him coming a block away, they would have for sure killed him. He did not hesitate to say that the cops had done this. As soon as Herbert Hoover took office, he went after Capone, thinking that this would ease nerve, uh, the nerves of Americans. This case had a number of players that I could just keep going for about hours just talking about all the possibilities of who could have committed this, um, the politics into this. Even with gangsters and drug dealers, there's so much politics that we could talk about, but I'm not going to get into it. Uh, this is an unsolved crime and was never officially linked to Capone, although many believe he did it. Capone gave interviews while in jail, but he never talked about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Al Capone would die at the age of 33 years old, and prohibition would come to an end in 1933. This case has been so interesting to research and just the complexity of so many gangsters and how everyone is just kind of intertwined during this period. Uh, let me know if you guys would want me to do other episodes on more like other notorious gangsters. Uh, let me know what you think about this episode. This is all I have for you guys today on today's episode. So follow me on Instagram. Thank you again for the support and for listening. Um, let's interact on Instagram, you know, recommendations, whatever you guys want. I'll see you in the next episode. Stay safe and remember, beware of the darkness inside.